0: Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about Romans 9. Now, Romans 9, that's like Calvinist, their home territory. That's what they turn to every time they want to prove eternal predestination or or God choosing people against their will. They turn to Romans 9, which is interesting because Romans 9 is a series of quotations from other parts of the Bible. I mean, we could turn to those parts of the Bible if we wanted to, And hopefully we can make from those instances the same case that Paul makes in Romans 9. If we can't do that, then there might be something wrong with our theology, or there might be something wrong with how we're trying to take Paul. There just might be. To understand the book of Romans, what Paul's trying to communicate to his audience, we really need to understand the ministry of Paul. Paul was not an original disciple of Jesus. He was not an original apostle of Jesus. Instead, in the epistles of Paul and his letters, he claims to have this special revelation straight from Jesus, straight from God, that recruits him to ministry. And throughout Paul's teaching, the one thing that he consistently does is he goes to the Gentiles. He goes to the people who the Jews really didn't think twice about, and he ministers to them. Something very interesting, something that the Gentiles had not heard before. And he tells them, You could be Jewish, or you could have full Jewish rights, you could have full Jewish participation without converting to Judaism. You don't have to circumcise, you don't have to follow the law, and you could be considered equal to the Jews. Read Ephesians 3, 6. And in Ephesians 3, Paul really points out that this stuff has not been revealed before. This is brand new, brand new, and Paul is the one who is the one teaching this. And he says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He says, this, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. He's saying, I got this special ministry to the Gentiles to proclaim Jewish and Gentile equality. And if you read through Acts, this is why Paul's persecuted. This is why people try to kill Paul. It's not because he's a Christian. It's not. The other apostles, they didn't get the same type of persecution that Paul got. Paul is often attacked by Jews and maybe even Jewish Christians because he's going around telling the Gentiles that the Gentiles don't have to follow the law. And we have a dispute in Acts 15 in which this question and these types of questions are brought to the disciples in Jerusalem. And Then we have again in Acts 21, more accusations against Paul that he's telling even Jews, he, he extends it past the Gentiles. He tells Jews that Jews do not have to circumcise. And this gets him in hot water. So he's persecuted not for Jesus per se, but, but for circumcision. He says, I am a prisoner in chains because I'm teaching that the Gentiles don't have to circumcise. And this is really upsetting the Jews who believe that they are the special people, the special elect people, that all the promises belong to them, and the Gentiles are outsiders, and they have to really become Jewish in order to be part of this promise, to be part of these blessings. So with the book of Romans, we really have a chance to explore Paul's theology, because he's writing to a church that he didn't found, and it's in a hostile audience. It was founded by probably Peter, and Paul's never even been there. So these guys don't even know what Paul is preaching, and Paul He uses this opportunity, he uses this letter to really defend what he is teaching to a hostile audience. So we just need to watch what language that Paul is using. He says, you know, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. He addresses rumors about himself. He says, those aren't true. Those are slander. And, you know, what if they were true? What would that mean? And he's really defending himself. And the tone of the letter is very emphatic about his points trying to press the truth of his message this is a hostile audience these are jews and these jews are in charge of the church and there might be some gentile believers that are at the church as well there was a group called the god fearers and these were the gentiles who were trying to convert to judaism and a lot of times they didn't convert to judaism because that involves circumcision and nobody likes circumcision who's going to willingly want to go do that it's just crazy, so they said, you know, I'm just going to hold off. I'll just be a God-fearer for now, but, you know, maybe I'll take the plunge a little bit later. This is the backdrop of Romans. Paul is explaining to a hostile Jewish audience why they are no longer the chosen people, why they have been cut off, and why Gentiles who don't follow the law are now equal to them. These guys are going to hate Paul. It's, it's just the nature of what's going to happen with this letter. Romans 9 really starts in Romans 8. I mean, you could extend it back there. In Romans 8, Paul is making a concerted point to point out that the person who is saved are the people who live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And by the flesh, he's going to be meaning those Jews who are living by circumcision and kosher law and everything that has to do with being the right person and doing the right actions. He's considering that as the flesh, And he's telling the Jews, he's saying, that's not going to save you. It's the person who has this spiritual inclination, who wants to serve and follow Jesus, who wants to serve and follow God. You don't have to do the right things to be saved. You have to believe and have the right state of mind. And the Jews are going to hate this, and they're going to be mad at him. I was talking to a Calvinist about Romans 9, and I said, let's start in Romans 8. What's his point there? That if... We live according to the flesh that will be cut off, but if we live according to the Spirit, we will live, we'll be saved. And the guy was like, no, that's not his point. So I was like, okay, Romans eight thirteen. for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Calvinists, they tend not to like the language that's used in the Bible because... It all assumes this free will. It all assumes this volition. It's all about free action and trying to convince people to do stuff and to live certain ways and believe certain things. And it's not about predestination. It's not about fatalism. The Bible doesn't use those concepts that were fated and predestined. And You know, the predestined in the Calvinist sense. They really don't understand the word as it's used in the Bible. Predestination is really just like a plan or a guide or boundaries. It's not this fatalistic, forcing people to do everything. It's just another case of Calvinists hijacking words and trying to make the words mean something that they really don't mean. So a great game to play with Calvinists is quote the Bible, but don't tell them you're quoting the Bible and ask them if it's accurate. And when they say no, then you just quote the Bible verse. And then they're just all mad because they just said no, that the Bible's wrong about something. But anyways, that's the point of Romans 8. That people need to live spiritually and not according to the Jewish law. That's what he's talking about, the flesh. He's not talking about a sinful nature or anything like that. He's saying, don't live according to the customs of Moses. And this is going to make his audience pretty mad. So he needs to talk about how this is actually going to work. This brings us to Romans 9. And 9, one. really tells us that his audience is hostile. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's saying, this really hurts me. So he's trying to empathize with his audience. He's saying, I know you're hurt. I'm hurt too. It's hard for you to accept. It's hard for me to accept. You know, we need to get through this together. And remember what we said Romans 8 was about. Romans 9, 3, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers." So where is this coming from in a Calvinist mindset? When is he talking about Israel in chapter 8 and their logic? Remember, chapter Eight's all against the Mosaic law, that we don't have to follow the Mosaic law anymore. And so he's saying now, he wishes he was cut off for the sake of his brothers, because Romans 8 is about the Jewish-Gentile divide, just like Romans 9 is. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, for they are Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So he just listed a bunch of distinct features of being Jewish. I really think Romans 9 is about group dynamics of being Jewish versus being Gentiles, and this is pretty strong evidence that that's the case, and Calvinists will try to make it about individual specific salvation. He's he's talking about groups. He's talking about the Israelites, what makes Israelites unique, and now he's going to be telling these Israelites, who are his audience, who's reading this, he's going to be telling them something they do not want to hear, and these are Jewish Christian audience. Verse 6 is a reference to the reoccurring promise that we find throughout the Bible that God is going to make of Abraham a great nation. Remember, the Jews were really intent on this promise, that this promise was a unilateral promise that had to come true no matter what. I suggest everyone go listen to our podcast on Matthew 3, John the Baptist, because that really goes a little bit more in detail on the reoccurring nature of this promise. But in Romans 9, 6, it says... But it's not as though the word of God has failed. And so one of the objections to what Paul is saying is that, you know, if Paul is saying something that's true, then God's word would have failed. That's what his audience would naturally think and object with. And he's trying to counter that objection. And here's how he does that. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's saying, look at historical Israel. Are all those people, you know, descended from Abraham? And, and of course not. You know, you got people that are coming through due to marriages and you got people who are converting into Israel. Israel was a very metropolitan type religion where, you know, they did have converts coming to them. And even in the Old Testament, there are biblical laws that allow conversion of Gentiles into the Jewish nation. So he's said this is not unprecedented that the Gentiles can be grafted in and share in our promises. It's not unprecedented, so we we need to step back and try to rethink this whole concept of being Jewish and being special because there's ways that other people who weren't born into this can become that. He says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring but through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. And now he's reversing that he's saying, you know, there are people who are born from Abraham and they're not considered the promise. So, so he's trying both sides here. He's saying there's people who are not of Abraham who are considered Israel. And there's people who are of Abraham who are not considered Israel. There's people who are direct descendants of him, but they don't automatically get the promise. And so he's telling his audience, you guys should not expect the same. Just because you're Jewish doesn't mean that, you know, you get the promise. It doesn't work like that. This tells us what mentality his audience had. Because we are Jews, we are part of the promise. We are saved. He says, no, that's not how these things work. So what happens next is a veritable retelling of the Old Testament. And he skips the direct promise to Abraham. If he were to try to attacked that or reinterpret that that he would cause a lot of bitterness in israel because remember that's a unilateral promise it has to come true he starts with isaac and each of the stories that paul tells that it serves a point it makes a specific point to the audience to tell them about paul's theology and tell them why paul's theology is correct the promise flows through isaac you know ishmael was a son as well but the promise did not flow through Ishmael, the promise flows through Isaac, and from Isaac it goes down to Jacob and Esau, and only one of those two people were elected or chosen, and let's read about that. Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As mentioned in our previous podcast, when you're using examples or illustrations, you could only extend it as far as the point the parallels allow. And trying to make this about individual election, it just doesn't work. First of all, you know, the text itself, it doesn't support that. It supports that there's two nations in the womb. And it says the older will serve the younger. That never happened in the life of Jacob and Esau. They're not really talking about individuals. So even if someone wanted to try to make that point, it's a bad point because that's not the point of this example. He's not saying people are individually chosen by name. He's saying, no, instead, being born a Jew does not make you part of the special chosen people automatically. It's all about this chosen lineage that flows through specific individuals. It's all about a family tree. And consider what Paul just said. He said people could convert into Judaism. And so he acknowledges that it's possible to convert into Judaism. This is not about individual selection, salvation, arbitrarily. He understands these are people groups. And people can be chosen to be part of the lineage. And other people can opt into that lineage. That's his point. And who, who opts in? It's the people who choose to. And, and what we'll, we'll read further on... He says this fairly specifically at the end of the chapter. We'll get there. We should probably take a look real quick at this small little phrase. And it says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. How is he using this? He's saying these children were selected before they did good or bad. Is this about eternal predestination of individuals? No, instead he's pointing out, you know, the previous chapters are all about the law who follows the law, and the people who follow the law, those are the ones who are chosen. He's saying people get chosen without the law. And another point that he could be making is that, you know, if the choice is arbitrary, then it can be dissolved as well, and there's nothing wrong with God dissolving an arbitrary point. Additionally, if God wanted to actually choose someone for something very equivalent to the Jewish promise, you know there's nothing wrong with that if the choices are just arbitrary and not based on deeds next paul contrasts moses's relationship to god with pharaoh's relationship with god moses was given benefits and blessings and paul quotes god when god shows moses his backside it's exodus 33 people could go read it this is not a calvinist proof text it, exodus 32 exodus 33 and when you look at Calvinists, like John Piper, I I Google it and I found his sermon about Exodus 33. He skips over all sorts of stuff that would make a mockery of his Calvinist theology. And it's really funny. It's like, what's going on in the text? Can you just explain what is happening in an intelligible manner? And he doesn't want to do that because that really counters his perceptions of God. But in Romans 9, Paul is using... Moses's special relationship and contrasting it to Pharaoh's relationship. Remember, God did not want Pharaoh to repent. I mean, Pharaoh could repent, and but often in the Bible when God wants to destroy someone, he tries to make sure that they can't repent. He puts barriers in front of them, and he hopes they don't because if they do repent, then he can't destroy them. He, he there's there's satisfaction in destroying the wicked, and if they repent, and you might begrudgingly show them mercy if a kid is incredibly sorry that he hurt his sibling you might be mad that the sibling is hurt and you don't want them to be so sorrowful because then if you punish them then you're going to feel bad because they really regret their actions and now they're repentant and they're humble and god just did not want that with pharaoh he wanted an example, a clear example of a nation that he could destroy and show his power over. And this would be a testament to all nations forever. And and in the Bible, the Exodus, the destruction of Pharaoh, it's pretty much the most quoted power event of God's. Even more than creation, the Exodus is mentioned in reference to God's power and God's ability to do things. And so Pharaoh was a tool of God's And he really wanted to destroy Pharaoh and contrast that to Moses. And so Paul's saying, you know, God can do that. He could have plans and he could try to do stuff with people. So let's put this back in context of Paul's message in Romans 9. The Jews are sitting there thinking, I'm saved by virtue of being a Jew. And Paul says, No, you're not. Your lineage doesn't actually mean that you are saved, and you actually could be a tool of wrath. You could be a Pharaoh. You know, you might be a Moses, but you could be a Pharaoh. You could be being used to prove some sort of point, and God might be able to show mercy on the Gentiles, much like he did Moses. And flipping to those texts, flipping to the Pharaoh texts, God has to put stuff in front of Pharaoh to try to make sure that Pharaoh doesn't repent, because Pharaoh could repent. That's something Pharaoh could do, and God has to take precautions to make sure that doesn't happen. In the entire Moses text, Moses absolutely had free will and engaged in conversations and dialogues with God to try to change God's mind and do stuff. And he even resisted God. He resisted God in Exodus 3 and 4. These are free will texts, and just keep in mind that these are free will texts when Paul starts talking about the potter and the clay. The very next verses, he says... Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endeared with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Notice those themes, that God's endearing and God has used patience, a lot of patience. These ideas just do not fit the Calvinist spin on this chapter. So, God has these vessels, and these vessels are part of national Israel, and they're not saved, but they're elect, and the Jews wonder, what's God doing with us? What's the point of electing people who aren't his people, and why did he even elect us? And Paul's saying, you guys could be an object lesson. It's a possibility, and God's not to blame. God's not at fault. You had a choice in this matter. Paul says, look at the jeremiah text and look what's going on in the jeremiah text god could use evil people for his purposes that's something god can do and that doesn't make god a bad person if you use an evil person to accomplish one of your goals he was going to be using you guys if you were good but then you decided not to be good and so he could still use you right there's nothing wrong with that Paul spins this back to the Gentiles. Remember, this whole chapter is about the Jewish-Gentile di- dynamics. And so Romans 9:23 says, In order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He's saying, can't God have this people group made up of uh, Jews and Gentiles to whom he shows mercy? And he's and He's throwing out these Gentile ideas, these Gentile themes to try to weave this idea into his argument that God has shown grace to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are now equal to the Jews. And this is something that his audience would naturally reject. Paul then quotes Hosea, Hosea two twenty three, but the thing is that the quote is atrocious. He's just cutting Hosea out of context, and Hosea is not about the Gentiles, but Paul wants to make it about the Gentiles, and that's sometimes how he quotes the Old Testament. He kind of switches themes around a little bit that works a little bit better with what he is trying to do, and Hosea, as in most of the Bible, most of the Bible talks about this remnant of Israel that God's going to save. Most of Israel gets killed, but from them springs this remnant who carries on the lineage, And Paul says, you know, why can't the Gentiles be part of that remnant that God is going to be raising from the ashes? Why? Why can't they be part of that? Aren't they righteous? Can't they be part of it? Can't God show them mercy? Then we get to the end of the chapter, and this is Paul's entire point of the chapter. This is Paul's conclusion Romans nine thirty. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Paul's point is that Jews are not saved by virtue of being Jews. There's something else that distinguishes. People who are saved and not saved. And it's not the law. It's not your heritage. It's something else. It's this righteousness that people show. And the Gentiles, they could show this righteousness. And so they are given God's mercy, even though that they're not part of Israel. They're they're not part of national Israel. But they could still attain this mercy. And he says, why can they do this? Because they seek the righteousness by faith, not by the works of the law. The, the Jews who are trying to attain righteousness by the works of the law and they have no faith, well, that doesn't do them any good at all because, you know, what are you doing? You're just the kind of living by the flesh and you don't even kind of care about God. And that's not good enough in Paul's theology. You can't just be going through the motions. And that's has precedence in the Old Testament where God says, you know, they sacrifice to me, but it's it's just lip service. And uh, it's an abomination to me that they're doing this. They're just walking through the motions, but they don't care about me. They don't worship me. And so they're cut off. And so Paul really does have precedence for a lot of the things that he is saying. And it would make sense to a Jewish audience, but they would still be hostile to it. And in order to reemphasize this point, Paul again quotes the Old Testament, he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. His point, again, is that everyone can come to God through faith. So a few things about Roman 9 that we have to keep in mind. Number one, he's not talking about a total abolition of any Jewish distinction whatsoever. And you hear his language throughout Romans 9 10, 11, just how he talks about Israel and how Israel's been cut off and Gentiles have been grafted in. But the Gentiles then can be cut off if they do the things that the Jews have done and the Jews could be regrafted in. The Jews were cut off for unbelief, Romans eleven twenty. Paul's idea, his conception is that the Jews have failed in their calling. And so someone else is called to fulfill their calling. And what is their calling? It's to reach the rest of the world. Gentiles in the Old Testament, in Jesus' time, Gentiles still could be saved per se. They could still be part of this God-fearer group and not be Jews. You didn't have to convert to Judaism to be saved. So this national distinction is not about individual-specific salvation to heaven. Although it is a related concept. Jews thought that by virtue of being Jewish, all those benefits and more flowed to them. And Paul says basically no. Paul's argument that the Gentiles have reached equal status with the Jews lies in part with the common sense notion that Gentiles can pursue God with faith. And with that concept in mind, he could say these people can be servants of God and these people likewise can be elevated like so many of historical people in Israel's history who have been promoted to the lineage of Israel, not by virtue of works, but by virtue of faith. Paul actually gives the reason that all this is happening. And let's listen to that reason and listen very carefully, because it's not a Calvinist concept at all. It's a very anti-Calvinist concept. Paul says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? He's referring to the Jews. Paul says, certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So this entire deal with the Gentiles and the Gentiles reaching Jewish equality has been to provoke Israel to jealousy so that Israel reforms their ways so then in the future they can reclaim their chosen status. This is an attempt by God to sway people, to change people's minds. It's not a Calvinist concept. And they'll probably cue us in a little bit about what being objects of wrath means. And when Paul uses in Romans 9, the parable of the potter and the clay and hardening for a purpose, God is making an object lesson out of current Israel by elevating the Gentiles to a preferred place. Let that sink in. So, quick overview of Romans 9. People can be saved by attempting to reach God through faith. There's historical precedence. Therefore, if God takes Gentiles who are pursuing God by faith and elevates them to a status equal to the Jews, God can do that if God wants to. And God is doing that, per Romans 11, in order to make Israel jealous because they failed him. And God can use them as an object lesson to show what happens. When people fail him, he could use fallen creatures to do stuff. That's what God can do. And so this is going to provoke them to jealousy and hopefully get them on the right path. But until that time, the Jews and Gentiles, they have equal status before God. They're they're considered equal. The Jews can't lord it over the Gentiles. Like in, in Old Testament eschatology, the Jews would have this kingdom, and all the Gentiles would be bringing the riches of the Gentiles to Israel and giving them to Israel. And Israel would be basically the kings over all of the earth. This is their special status. It's not about individual-specific salvation to heaven. Because remember, in Jewish eschatology, they were looking forward to a restored earth in which they're living side-by-side with Gentiles who are not part of this chosen people. It's not individual specific salvation to heaven it's salvation it's being chosen as a specific people group with a specific tasking who is going to fulfill a specific role in a restored earth that was what election was and that's what this people group was that was the jews special status On another note, the salvation that they're speaking of here is salvation from Roman oppressors, is this restored earth in which God comes down and liberates his people from their oppressors. When Calvinists take these verses, these chapters, and they try to make it about individual specific salvation to some spiritual realm based on absolute foreknowledge and and God meticulously controlling everything, it really rips everything out of context of what Paul's trying to do. And it really undermines the very Jewish basis of Paul's thought. Paul is talking to a Jewish audience. They're in steeped in Jewish theology. Apocalypticism is alive and well. And that's their mindset. And that's what Paul's addressing. And he's not addressing Calvinism. Paul's not addressing 5th century concerns. He's not addressing 16th century concerns. He's not addressing 21st century concerns. He's addressing 1st century concerns. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage, or feel free to start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening.